Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and I could not be more thrilled about today's episode. Our guest is author, historian, and one of my personal heroes, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote the National Book Award winning Stamped from the Beginning, as well as this year's New York Times bestseller, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Before we dive into the conversation, I wanted to remind you, everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. Use the link there to shop for the books we've discussed and read the articles we mentioned. Plus, you'll find our social media accounts in the show notes to keep you connected to the stacks. If you love this show and want more of the stacks, check out our Patreon page. You can support the work we're doing and earn perks for yourself like our virtual book club and more. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the fun. And remember, if you like what you hear, take a moment to rate and review this show wherever you get your podcasts, especially Apple Podcasts. Okay, now it's time for my spoiler-free interview with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. All right, you guys, I am sitting here today with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, also famously of Stamp from the Beginning. Ibram, welcome to the Snacks. Thank you for having me on the show. This is truly one of my great honors. I love your work. I love your books. So I'm going to try not to fangirl too much, but you'll forgive me, I hope. (laughs) 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 Um, We always start in the same place. In about 30 seconds or so, can you tell us about uh, how to be an anti-racist? Sure. So how to be an anti-racist makes this sort of case that the the opposite of being a racist is is not not racist. It's it's being an anti-racist, and and not racist has historically been a term of denial. Uh, while anti-racist has a very clear definition. Uh, so if racist ideas connote racial hierarchy, anti-racist ideas connote racial equality. If racist policies lead to racial inequity, anti-racist policies lead to racial equity. And so obviously in the book, I, I, I essentially try to tell the story. Story and, and share how we can be anti-racist. Right. And you use a lot of examples from your own life in addition to the history of America and racist ideas in America and kind of combine those two things to illustrate your points. Is, right? That's how you say it, maybe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I read Stamp from the beginning. It was major life-changing for me. And one of the things 
that I'm really curious about is, did you know that how to be an anti-racist was coming when you were writing Stamped, which is more of like a traditional non-fiction kind of text, whereas anti-racist is a little bit more like maybe part memoir, part, you know, so did you kind of have an idea that that's where this was going to be? No. No clue. (laughs) No. Did it come, where did it come from then? How did, how did you decide to do it? So I think in writing Stamped from the beginning, I, I, during the course of my research, I realized I didn't just want to chronicle the history of, of racist ideas. I also wanted to chronicle the ideas that were challenging these racist ideas. Mm-hmm. And I found out very early on that many of the people who I was cl- characterizing uh, as racist were characterizing themselves as not racist, right. um, characterizing their ideas as not racist. And so clearly I didn't want to use the very term that was used by the racist that I was chronicling. Mm. And so I just des- I decided uh, to to use the term anti-racist um, to sort of contrast that with with racist ideas. And the more I spoke about Stamp from the beginning in public, the more I would urge people to be anti-racist. And the more I would urge people to be anti-racist, the more people would be like, well, tell me a little bit more about being an anti-racist because I've been taught to be not (laughs) racist. And so people just continuously would ask me, how can I be an anti-racist? And that's how I got the idea for the book. Right. And but you do use a lot of the same history. Mm -hmm. I kind of tell people because I I have been I'm a book pusher. I push books on people and stamped is one that I like to push on people. And a lot of people started it and got nervous or, you know, or thought it was too big and they were scared and it's a lot of racism all at once. And so I told a lot of people, well, how to be an anti-racist is like much more approachable because it gives you examples as opposed to like all of the history. I don't have you felt like people have responded in that way or like the people who maybe were scared to pick up stamped have picked up anti-racist. I think so. And and obviously, you know, people don't have we don't have that much time these days. And um, (laughs) so clearly reading a 500 page book can be daunting. Um, And not everyone necessarily reads history, um, nonfiction narrative history. And not everyone reads um, a history of some of the most horrific things that have ever been said about about black people. Um, And so I think obviously reading any book on racism is difficult. Reading a history book, which I think most people assume is going to be dry, uh, although I tried to make stamps. It's not dry. It's so accessible. (laughs) It's amazing. And and then, of course, the, the size of it. So I can I mean, I've actually seen, you know, that people have read How to Be an Anti-Racist and then have decided to go and read Stamp from the Beginning. I've heard that same thing, too, which makes me really happy. I hope, I'm sure it makes you happy, too. Uh, sure. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if you do this because you're a scholar, but I'm going to ask you anyways. And if you don't, you just tell me I don't do that. How do you suggest that people implement the things that they've learned from this book in situations? I know I follow you on Twitter and I know you talk about like, you know, you should be calling out your race, your family members for their racist ideas. But how do you feel like is a way that people can do that without, like, because, you know, when someone says you're being racist, then that's like the pejorative term and everyone freaks out and thinks that it's like you're being a bad person. But you posit that, you know, saying that someone's racist or doing something racist is more of a descriptive term. Mm -hmm. So how do you suggest that people actually, like, have those conversations in a productive way, you know? So I think, I think that, First and foremost, if, if, if 
people, there are many people who have been trying to have those conversations, right. particularly over the last two years, mm-hmm. and relationships have been strained. And so in those cases, I would actually suggest for people to rebuild the relationship and not necessarily have discussions about about racism. And, and the reason being is because in order for people to strive, take the steps to be anti-racist, they're going to have to be very vulnerable. And in order for them to be vulnerable with you, they're going to have to trust you and you're going to have to have a strong relationship. And so that's why it's critical to, to rebuild that relationship. And while rebuilding it, it's critical to also try to figure out why they're addicted to racism. Mm. And so it's just like any other addiction. There's something underlying it that it's critical for you to figure out so that you can potentially, when you have those discussions, when you've rebuilt the relationships, you can speak to those underlying sort of ideas and economic struggles or whatever it is that's actually driving their addiction uh, to racist ideas. That's so good. And then you just kind of slide your book across the table to them while you're rebuilding. I just got you this present. Here you go. Enjoy it. Um, So I know that you do the Anti-Racist Book Festival and you have a children's book version coming out with Jason Reynolds. What other things are you thinking or like in your perfect world? What's what's the next five years look like for for the anti-racist work that you do in Anti-Racism Center? So, I mean, I think... You know, there's obviously there's work with with the center, and uh, we we will be having another uh, national anti-racist book festival oh, yes. on April 25th of of next year. Okay, um, and we actually do have a few projects um, that we're about to unveil. Uh, we can't necessarily unveil them. Okay, now I'm trying to break news. Yes, <laughs> you know, but we'll be unveiling them. Soon, And then, you know, personally, um, so it's been announced, obviously, the the project with with Jason Reynolds um, and which I'm really excited about. Uh, And it's also been announced and I'm working on a a board book entitled Anti-Racist Baby. Um, And so really taking and breaking down these concepts in, in language toddlers. Uh, can understand and, and parents can can understand in terms of how they can talk to to little ones about about these issues um, and and I'm, we're hoping actually to announce a few other projects pretty soon. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm also working on which a, a history of racist policies that okay. that would be very similar to stamp from the beginning, but instead of ideas, it would be about policies. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Okay, that sounds amazing. What was the hardest part about writing How to Be an Anti-Racist? I think in general, obviously, I'm... I'm, I'm, Well, first, let me say I'm a very, very private person, Mm -hmm. and I don't really... Like, even on social media, I don't talk. I talk sometimes about my personal life, but that's not often, and... And so basically deciding to use personal narrative Mm. was ordinarily very difficult. But then on top of that, the stories that I told were usually some of the most shameful moments, um, you know, of my life. And so that, of course, was very difficult to to, you know, basically share with the world. And then, you know, obviously, when I decided that in certain ways I was going to be a subject uh, of the text, um, you know, obviously I was very, very critical of some of the things that I've, that I've done and said. 
And so obviously, you know, to critique yourself publicly is, is not an easy thing to do. But I thought all of that was necessary in order for the book to be able to relate to people. Whose idea was it to be personal in the book? Was that your idea or was that something that I know sometimes authors, their editors kind of massage them in a direction? Or was Mm -hmm. that something that you knew you wanted to do, even if it was kind of terrifying? So, I I mean, it was it was something that I knew that would make the book um, more compelling and, and, and more accessible. And. But at the same time, it's not something I wanted to do right. for I the see. reasons it's I like just medicine. said. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but of course, how to sort of write a text that only really one of the genres is, is personal narrative. So you, of course, have history in a text. Right. You have social commentary and empirical data. Um, right. and And then in many ways, you have a personal narrative that's, largely chronological, hmm. but then you also have a thematic chronological narrative. In other words, you have each chapter is, has a theme and it, each theme sort of builds on each other throughout the book. And so it was difficult to write both a personal and thematic um, chronological sort of story um, that actually made sense. But, you know, we were able to, to eventually put it together. It makes sense. It's yeah. good. It's a good book. How long did it take you to write the book? About two years. Two years. What sort of stuff were you reading yourself or watching or listening to while you were doing this work? Not necessarily anti-racist texts, but just like kind of what sort of stuff was feeding your brain while you were going through this process? So typically when I write um, books, I try to read novels. Um, And so... When I was writing this book, I was um, mostly reading uh, and, and listening on audio to novels, just because, you know, obviously, um, you know, n- novels are, uh, the, the novelists are, well, yeah, I consider novelists to be our greatest of writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to me, in order to, to write well, you have to read, you know, great writing and great writing regularly. So, So that's what... I tend to sort of um, read as I'm writing um, books. Okay. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. You've put out at least two really awesome anti-racist book lists. One was for Ralph Northam, and mm-hmm. I think the other one was just like summer reading. Like, <laughs> go read a book. What is on your personal brings Ibram joy, excites you, inspire you, inspires you reading list? So not necessarily all anti-racist, but like what sort of stuff are you like, if you want to read like me, here's a few things. Well, I mean, I would say specific authors. And so um, uh, W.B. Du Bois and, and, and Malcolm X um, and Dorothy Roberts. And um, I mean, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Jasmine Ward's mm. uh, novels and Jacqueline Woodson. Um and obviously James Baldwin and, and Maya Angelou. All right. Those are all great people. How do you write? Where are you? What do, you do you have snacks and beverages? Do you light a candle? Do you have any rituals? Like what's the scene for you? Or how do you how do you like to write best, I guess? So I, I like to have a, basically nothing on my schedule f- for that day okay. um, other than writing. Um, and so typically I just pretty much have like tea and maybe some sort of snack like raisins or something like that and you know I get in get to my desk at you know 8 or 9 a.m. Um, and pretty much write the whole day um, and so nothing special other than Those are special that. things yeah, everyone okay. has different answers like some people are they write late at night mm-hmm. uh, some people like to have whiskey like everybody thinks their oh, wow. answer is like <laughs> normal and then I hear all the answers and I'm like oh my god everyone's so different so I've never had raisins before that's never been on the show so you're the first raisins how did you come to writing books I know that you're an academic I know that you're a professor did you always want to be a writer or was that something that you discovered through the process of having to write as part of your education so when I was in college uh, I decided to that I wanted to pursue journalism and I initially was thinking about broadcast journalism, but then I was like, you know what, I think I'm a better writer than I am speaker. Okay. So <laughs> I started pursuing, uh, you know, print journalism. And and so in, in my mind, I was, you know, wanted to be a journalist. And it wasn't really until I 
started pursuing my PhD and that, you know, I realized that that in order for me to essentially do my job and keep my job, that I had the right book. So it wasn't, I think becoming an academic is what ultimately led me down the path to writing books. And now do you feel like a writer or do you still feel like it's through your academic, like, do you feel like that's something that you're happy to be and that's part of your identity in a way that you're excited about? Or is it something that's still kind of like a byproduct? I probably would see it more as a byproduct. Hmm. Um, That's so interesting. And I mean, I don't, I don't really separate the writing from the scholarship. Sure. Um, And, and yes, I mean, I, when I write, I try to be creative in terms of how I write and, and the sentences, but ultimately the goal with that is always to, com- to to communicate scholarship and make it accessible and understandable to people. And you're a young guy. I when I I read your book and I was like, carry the one. Hold on a second. You're pretty young, like for being such a scholar and for like the work that you do and all the success that you've had and all the things that you've been able to do so far. Do you ever like feel like I I can slow down, or do you feel like I'm just going to keep putting the pedal to the metal kind of thing because I feel like you're prolific like you've written these great books you've run a national book award you have the center what is it like I guess since I guess my career is very sort of mission oriented in mm-hmm. terms of dismantling racism and uh, you know being a part of a movement to erect an anti-racist society uh, I don't imagine notions like you know maybe I can slow down I mean obviously I think on some level, after I finish a book, I don't, you know, turn around the very next day and start a new book. But right. probably in the next few weeks, I do. Right. So um, maybe I do take a, a, you know, a little break. But, um, but yeah, I mean, to me, there's just work to be done, and and I have to do it. I'm so glad you do it. I'm curious. So, Stand from the Beginning came out in 2016, and then you wrote How to Be an Interracist. It came out this year. When you think back on Stamped, are there things that you maybe would change or you feel like your thinking has grown and changed in ways about that book? Or do you still feel like it holds up for you? Because so much has changed in the world, mm-hmm. I feel like, since the book came out. So I think to, to probably two major things. I think the first is that in How to Be an Anti-Racist, I sort of re- rethought the term racial discrimination and and so commonly particularly in within racial justice circles racial discrimination is understood as racist mm-hmm. um and you know the more i thought about that term particularly the way in which it's been weaponized by racists the more i realized that instead of us focusing on the discrimination we should be focusing on the outcome of the discrimination mm-hmm. And as I talk about how to be an anti-racist, it's a very different thing when you have a lily white room and you hold some white people at the door to provide more equity in that room than when you have a diverse room and you hold white people at the door. Hmm. Um, and so to me, the first, when you're sort of discriminating and it's leading to equity, mm-hmm. I would argue now that that's anti-racist discrimination, while when you are essentially creating inequity through discrimination, it's racist. Um, Obviously, 
the term discrimination has been weaponized by racists with terms like reverse discrimination, like claiming affirmative action, which reduces racial inequity, is racist. And, and I think that's partly because of our commitment to the term racial discrimination as a pejorative. Um, and so in Stand from the Beginning, I used the term racial discrimination a mm. lot. Um, and so maybe in an updated book, I probably wouldn't – I'd probably change that term to racist policy mm. um, or racist discrimination. And secondly, obviously, I don't – I think – I don't really talk much of anything about Trump and right. stand from the beginning. In my version, there's a little something, I think, in the in the forward or the yes. afterward. Yeah. I have the paperback. So I think in the paperback edition, I speak about him in, the, in a new sort of preface. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the sort of hard copy, you know, uh, I guess the main body, I don't talk about, which I'm kind of conflicted about. Because right. on the one hand, I think one of the problems in the rhetoric around Trump's racism is people have reduced racism to Trump. Right. And, you know, obviously we need to be able to understand racism in everyone who's exuding it and reinforcing it, not just one person. Um, You know, on the other hand, obviously he's a very pivotal figure now um, within the history of American racism. And, um, and and so, you know, it seems almost like he should be um, – he should have a, a singular role. What I'm imagining, though, is obviously with the racist policies book um, that, I'm, that I'm hoping to finish one day, he obviously would have a very prominent role uh, in that text. Do you feel like you've seen a large shift in the way that we talk about racism because of Trump? Aside from like that, he has become the face of racism, and mm-hmm. like in a lot of ways, people think that we had vanquished racism with Obama, and then this one person came back, and or this one person appeared, and now we have racism again. But mm-hmm. aside from the, those kind of like fantasy ideas that aren't, I don't think, realistic at all, have you seen or or maybe heard ways people are engaging with racism or anti-racism in different ways that maybe have surprised you or? confounded you or anything like that? I think that we, I think there has been a segment of Americans who were sort of, who had fell asleep during the Obama era Mm -hmm. and had imagined that, uh, you know, and what I mean by, I'm specifically talking about moderate and and liberal Americans who, who had imagined that we were headed along this path of racial progress, that things were sort of looking up and and, and getting better. And when Trump um, obviously was, became president, obviously for them, it became harder to maintain that, that idea, that conception. And I think instead they had to confront the reality of how deep and pervasive Racism still is in the United States, which then caused those people possibly to begin reassessing themselves and and their country uh, for its racism in very serious ways, which, of course, has, I think, been helpful to the anti-racist sort of cause. Right. So 
there's a person on Bookstagram. His name is Reggie, and he's my pal, and he also loves your books. And I <laughs> said to him, I was like, if you could ask, you know, Ibram Kendi anything, what, did, what would you ask? And so I said, I would ask you this on his behalf. He wants to know if you weren't doing the work that you're doing in the anti-racism center, what do you think you'd be doing? Like maybe what did you imagine your life to be before this this became your life? So probably a a sports reporter. Oh, and me so, too. Yeah, I have that dream. I was still. A, yeah, I was initially uh, when I was a journalism student at FAMU. My main major, my focus was sports reporting, and so I did a ton of internships and. Um, you know, in sports sections of newspapers. And, and that's the sort of path that I was headed until uh, I sort of realized that I wanted to report on race and ultimately wanted to become an academic yeah. on it. Well, who's your team? What's, what's your sport? What do you like? Well, I'm a huge New York Knicks fan. Oh, right, because you're from New York, of course. I should yes. have known that. I should have known. Um, <laughs> um, oh, I do have a question about something that is that I noticed as a change between the two books. Mm -hmm. So in Stamped, you kind of have three, you don't kind of, you have three categories. You have segregationist, you have assimilationist, and then you have anti-racist. And in How to Be an Anti-Racist, it's kind of two categories. You mm -hmm. kind of combine the assimilationist and segregationist into just good old-fashioned racist. Mm -hmm. Why? So I think I think in stamped, well, let me say, I think in How to Be, I do talk about assimilationists and segregationists in the dueling consciousness chapter. But mm, like right. you said, I don't really speak about it regularly uh, after that. The reason being is because I thought that it was already difficult for people to understand the sort of two-way contrast mm -hmm. between racist and anti-racist, um, that to sort of add a third kind without a tremendous amount of um, historical and evidentiary material, as Stamp does, right. it would have been, I think, difficult for people. Um, and so, obviously, I'm hoping that, you know, people who haven't read Stamped would, would go and, and, and really understand the distinctions uh, between types of racist ideas, segregationist and, 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 and assimilationist. Um, but I also wanted to make the text less about the sort of contrast between racist ideas and more about the sort of intersectional theory and more about um, notions of race and biology and ethnicity and culture and behavior, um, which I think provides the grounding for them to understand those distinctions between the, the kinds of racist ideas. That makes a lot of sense. For people who love how to be an anti-racist... What, aside, I guess, I mean, you've already put out these book lists, this question's a little redundant, but what things do you think are in conversation with your book? What books would you recommend to them? What sort of stuff would you say, I mean, aside from Stamped, to continue their their work? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, one of the things that you talk about in this book that I should definitely mention is that being an anti-racist is an active condition. It's mm -hmm. not, you can't just be one, just like you can't be not racist. You can't just inhabit the anti-racist just like you say you can't just be call yourself an activist you actually have to have achieved some activism mm -hmm. to be an activist you have to achieve some you know you have to be working consciously on anti-racism so what are some texts that you would say are good companion pieces to what you've done here so i mean well for, let me say in general first that any any text that sort of documents racist policies in power um, 
which then gives people an understanding of, of why the racial inequities around them exist, which allows them to better understand those policies as the problem as opposed to people, I think complements this sort of text well. Um, and I also uh, think that there's been an interesting sort of so two texts, for instance, for, for white people, um, White Fragility, obviously, mm. by, by Robin DiAngelo, um, is a, can be a companion text. And, and I understand many people who've read that text, have, have read or uh, are reading uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, because obviously it is a difficult process to, mm -hmm. to be an anti-racist if you're white. And it's... And, it's, and there's no way you're going to be able to do that if you're extremely fragile, right? right. Um, and and the other text um, for white people, I think that complements it well, is a book called Dying of Whiteness hmm. by Jonathan Metzl, in which he specifically looks at uh, white uh, opposition to gun control policies hmm. and how in the states that have removed those policies. It's led to an epidemic of white male suicide. So in other words, like... They're <laughs> um, dying. Dying from their own... Because typically they pushed for the ability to get more guns so they can protect against Latinx immigrants, black criminals, and Muslim terrorists. And so their own racist um, ideas and support for these policies have actually led to a spike in, in white male suicides. And all, obviously... The opposition to Obamacare or even universal health care because they didn't want people of color to get their health care. And now they're dying as a result um, because they don't have access to health care. He, he also talks about and also the you know opposition or I should say the support for cuts in school funding in, in Kansas. Uh, and people just thought that those cuts were going to come down on the black and Latinx schools. Right. And ultimately, they came down on the white schools, too. And so, um, you know, I think that's a that's a great text that sort of um, looks at the harmful effects to white people on on anti-black uh, policies. Hmm. And, and then in terms of a text, I think is also a good companion text for how to be for black people is a text called um, Locking Up Our Own. Mm. Um, and what James, when that text, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize. Mm -hmm. And I think what James does very well is, like I argue in, in the text, uh, against this notion that black people don't have power. Right. He, he shows um, the way in which in the late 60s, 70s, early 80s, you had a lot of black mayors and black police chiefs and, mm. and black city councilmen uh, and women who had the power to institute um, harsher sentencing laws, um, and they did so uh, in some cases. And, and he specifically looks at Washington, D.C., which, of course, was uh, controlled largely by black people. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and so I think that's a very good text for people to understand the context of how a first that, you know, there are levels of black power and how some black people have used their power to essentially harm black lives, um, all the while thinking that they were supporting the community. Right. OK, I just have like two more questions mm -hmm. for you. What is the most surprising reaction that you've had to your book or maybe pushback or something just that you've been like, oh, 
so interesting that you heard that or you got that from reading the story. So actually, I thought that the pushback against my contention that black people can be racist too, mm-hmm. that the pushback was going to be more. Hmm. Um, and so, of course, you know, there are people who have pushed back against it. Um, but I thought it was going to be much more intense. And right. and I don't know whether it's because the pushback has been private. Hmm. Um, I, I know there has certainly been private pushback. Or that the people who were pushing back against it decided to sit down and actually read the book. Mm. And they they realized that the way they were conceptualizing power um, was in some ways fraud. Um, and, and, and the way they were conceptualizing racist. And so, you know, I thought there would be a greater pushback. Um, but at the same time, I've just seen many, many um, people of color who've reached out to me and and were really um, pleased that I challenged them um, mm-hmm. or I challenged orthodoxy in that way because mm-hmm. in a way it liberated them um, to sort of see who truly um, are the problems. In other words, um, they they were sort of, it gave them the ability to reflect on their own ideas um, about other people of color, uh, as well as like when they go to these sort of community meetings and that so-called radical speaker stands up and starts going in on this is what's wrong with black people. They're now seeing those people in completely different ways. Right. right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've, obviously I've been pleased, to, you know, about, you know, about that. Um, and I've also been I've just been surprised just about the reception. Like, I would have never thought that it would, like, debut number two. Which is so amazing. Um, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm i going to cry. I think that's so amazing. The book is so good. And I actually had the same thought. I was like, I hope the book does well. And then I saw where it was, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, I think that's really special, mm-hmm. like, that you're able to write a book about something that's so – people are so scared and touchy about and mm-hmm. that people bought it and are reading it. Yeah. Like, And people that, are proud that they – bought yeah. it and they're posting about it and yeah. talking about it. That's yeah. so badass. I love that. Um, who's the coolest person who's expressed interest or who's expressed like gratitude or something from reading any of your books? Um, man, there's been so many. Um, uh, probably, um, probably Angela Davis. Mm. Um, and so I had the opportunity to be uh, in conversation with her on stage in San Francisco um, in in January. And um, she, for those of you who haven't read Stamp from the beginning, you know, she was a, a major character in the text. And, yeah. you know, for years, you know, I hadn't really heard from her. And so mm-hmm. I didn't know whether she, what she thought about the text. Mm-hmm. Apparently her sister uh, read the text um, and then introduced it to her. And, and she, you know, thought that, she really, really liked the text and 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 how I sort of um, portrayed her. Uh, obviously, I mean, she was portrayed as the most anti-racist, yeah. so I'm sure you know it was easier for her to, right. to right. Than, right. than others. But of course, you you know, I, you. So it was just really reassuring um, that she, you know, thought highly of the book and, and thinks highly of my work. Okay, here's my last question for you. It's kind of open. If you could be in charge of what people take away from how to be an anti-racist, what would you want to make sure that people took away from the book? I think two things. First, that they would that the term "not racist" 
and race neutral and other terms like that <laughs> would be eliminated from their vocabulary. Please. Um, secondly, that they would recognize that doing nothing is, is being racist. Hmm. And thirdly, that we can build an anti-racist society. Yeah, let's do it. Ibram Kendi, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. This is so great. And everybody, go out and get How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I challenge you, go get Stamped from the Beginning, too. It's not as scary as you think. I was scared. I have to admit, I was terrified when I started it. And then I've like read in five days. It's so good. It's it's readable. It's just a lot of information. But you have that's why you have a brain. That's why you read. <laughs> yes. So you can learn things. So go out and get both of these books. Ibram, thank you so much for being here. And everybody, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you so much for listening to the short stacks today. And of course, a thank you again to Ibram X. Kendi. I would also like to thank Ashley Garland, Maria Burkell, and Stacey Stein for making this episode happen. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspod.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks and join the fun. Don't forget, get your lady box before it sells out. Head over to theladygang.com for more info. And make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review this show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tegiriges. This episode of The Stacks was produced by Alan Santiago, and the show was created by me, Tracy Thomas. And I will see you in The Stacks.